Can you hear that, Barry? Not a whole lot going on in the background. That's because I've got a brand new microphone that I'm extremely excited about. And it's got a really low self-noise level. Uh, all these little tech nerdy things that I absolutely love. I really enjoy getting your message about it, Chad, when it was about to be delivered and you were so excited <laughs> for this microphone. And then you went to record it a cover straight away, which was very cool to see. So I'm excited to see what you do with it and kind of what new creations you make with this brand new top-of-the-range <laughs> microphone. Absolutely. And I hope that it continues, Barry. I hope that it's not one of those gadgets that you get and you're so excited about right at the beginning and then you never use it. Although, for the argument <laughs> against that, we do have our weekly podcast every week. It rolls on by, um, so it'll always be used. Exactly, exactly. And it gives that crisp audio quality, bringing Chad's silky, silky <laughs> smooth voice into your ears every single week here at Across the Pond. Welcome. Pond, across the pond, with Barry and Chad. It's enough about my week, Barry. How are you doing on that side? I see... You've had some crazy temperatures soaring over there and you got a little bit of relief last night. Oh, it was so wonderful, Chad. We've, we've had a week or two of really, really hot temperatures and that dry Joburg heat, you know, that kind of makes you feel very sticky yep. and icky. It really doesn't have the humidity that you would like. Um, and last night we had about six or seven hours of rain through the night. It was absolutely wonderful to kind of lie on the couch. Uh, we're watching a movie last night and just kind of listening to the rain fall. It was really, really nice. So things are much cooler. There's a, a nice overcast conditions to today and I feel a lot more human than I did a couple days ago. Well, that's always a good thing. Uh, definitely good to feel human. Um, on my side, <laughs> Barry, it's just been the exact opposite. It's been miserable. We've had dark. It's been getting dark at Hoppers 4 since we had the clocks changed, uh, oy, which is oy. really not great. It's been cold and it's been wet, constantly wet. Um, so, you know, I'm clearly quite grumpy about that. But nevertheless, <laughs> shall we look back on this week that was? Let's do it, Chad. The week that was. We're kicking this one off on a pretty somber basis. We were looking through the show notes just before we kicked off Barry. And uh, we've at least got a little bit of exciting stuff coming through up on the end of the episode, which I'm sure we're looking forward to. Um, <laughs> but as always, we've got to kick this one off on the somber note, Barry. Uh, because these are the hard-hitting realities of the world that we're living in. Definitely. And it's one of those things where you kind of thought that COVID was going to slowly kind of fade out of the news, but it's there yep. every single week, Chad. It's been the kind of the defining story of 2020, and we wouldn't do it justice if we didn't bring up these new these new things. And so there's been lots happening on your side of the pond, Chad, and I'm, I'm, I'm keen to hear what's been going on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a lot to report basically on the last day. So as we're doing this, Barry, we're in November. It's the 1st of November. Crazy stuff. I can't believe it. Um, but essentially, a lot of developments happening yesterday and just yesterday. And we're essentially talking about Europe's second wave, uh, which a lot of experts had kind of anticipated. We never knew when it was going to come and what the kind of uh, you know gravity or actual quantum of it was going to look like. Uh, but we're now in the middle of it. And uh, obviously, we, we're now looking at the story as it's unfolding. And uh, France and Germany have gone into a second national lockdown. And that obviously happened early on in the week. And I think for a lot of us, that was certainly quite a, uh, a moment that put everything into a bit of perspective, I'd say, where you're kind of feeling like we've just been living in this fairy tale wonderland and ultimately denying to ourselves uh, the reality that this is going to be coming back. We've had our borders open. We, we ultimately are trying to live semi-normal lives. Uh, but while the borders are open, while we're heading into winter, ultimately... Uh, the virus is going to come back and it's going to come back hard. And that's exactly what happened. We had an emergency briefing happen uh, last night uh, from Boris. And there's a few little 
procedural things that I want to just touch on here, Barry, and get your take on. And uh, ultimately, the first thing being, well, this was an emergency briefing. So apparently he had planned initially to have this briefing on Monday, um, essentially to lay out the measures we're going to discuss. But ultimately, there was a leak through the press. And uh, it was all over newspapers on Saturday. And his hands were kind of tied uh, to hold this briefing, an emergency briefing. Always an interesting dynamic there. It's kind of one of those one of those key pieces of a 21st century world where the modern media is the court of public opinion, right? Yep. And so if they get some news before it comes out, or right, we've seen it with product leaks when it comes to services and, and, and kind of people selling things. We've seen it in politics. We've seen it in governmental stuff, tough yep. stuff. And when the media get hold of it before you want to release it, you, you, do, you don't really have any other choice, right? Because those rumor mills can be even more devastating than the actual news itself. Yep. And you always want to be able to control the narrative wherever possible. So you want to be able to stand up and, and say your piece. And when reporters are getting to kind of source material before you could be, get to say your piece, it can really cause some damage. And so, yeah, it's one of those things that in today's world, you have to be so, so careful with that information. And it's very hard to avoid these kinds of leaks because there's just so many humans involved, right? Exactly. And I believe there's a bit of a search going on to try and identify where the leak came from. But, uh, you know, these types of leaks have been around for a long time. Uh, so whether that's actually going to prove fruitful, uh, that investigation, who knows? Uh, but but yeah, really interesting. So on the back of all of that, obviously, there was a bit of scrambling happening at 10 Downing Street. And for the first time, I know we, we talk about delays on your side of the pond very, very <laughs> often, Barry. But for the first time, this briefing was supposed to happen at four o'clock. And it actually ended up airing at 6.50 in the evening. Um, sure. So quite a delay. I was really quite frustrated because I was on my couch looking at the TV at 4 o'clock. You're just there waiting for, to hear what your imminent fate is for the next little while. <laughs> and uh, just being delayed, being delayed. Uh, but obviously a lot of process stuff that has to happen behind the scenes before some of these statements can be made. It always makes me wonder, like, do you think that things were changing like right then, like at 420, do you think things were changing or people were still debating like bits and pieces of how it's gonna work? Um, I, I'm always curious, I'd love to know what goes on behind the scenes and you'll you'll find out in years to come, yeah. of course. But for now, like I wonder what was happening in those two hours, because like you say, it's very uncharacteristic, it's very un-British um, and it's very much a, a, a kind of, it kind of points to how things are a bit in the air at the moment, and there's a lot of different moving parts that are yeah. co contributing to all the various things in the second wave. Definitely, and just in terms of what those delays were actually for, I think the MPs had to actually be called in uh, from some of the opposition parties and, and be shown some of the stats that were going to be spoken about, make sure that everyone's on the same page. Ultimately, there is a little bit of a difference this time um, because there's a vote that's due to happen on Wednesday uh, to actually approve these measures that are going to be announced uh, in the, in Parliament, which is different to what, what happened the last time. Um, so obviously okay. all of that process type of stuff, which you, know, you, you, you have to... Uh, ultimately cross the t's and, and dot the i's yeah definitely that, that is interesting and uh, i think that the we, 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 we're going to get to it like who has the power here and, and who's going to actually like implement all these things but it's one of those things where the numbers don't lie i mean we've seen some crazy numbers in the uk yeah. in the last couple of days and and so there really has to be action here and the question and the debate is going to be how do you do it how do you implement it and obviously boris is going to need the buy-in from all these various ministers and all the people in parliament so that it doesn't look like another kind of grab at people's freedoms, at people's freedom of movement, at people's ability to, to take on normal lives. 
Exactly. So what is this big thing that we keep on talking about but not talking to exactly? Well, London and the UK ultimately are going into a second national lockdown. And for me, I feel like devastated. I don't know why, but I feel even worse than I did in the first lockdown, Barry. Maybe it's because of the fact that we've been able to appreciate living life fairly normally, not to 100%, but fairly normally. And to be honest, the way that we've been living for the last couple of months, I kind of thought that scenario where, where you pointed out uh, right at the beginning of this process of us overreacting, looking back and saying, okay, we better to have overreacted than not. I kind of felt like that's a little bit of what we maybe did uh, based on you know us now having more information about masks and having the steroid that can you know drop cases by a third, having better testing, et cetera, et cetera. I, I personally, not sure why, but I didn't think... We, we, we get to this and uh, ultimately, again, living in this uh, wonderland fairy tale world uh, that just doesn't exist. So in terms of those cases that you mentioned, obviously testing is always a concern. So there's a few studies that run concurrently. And what all of those studies indicate, Barry, is that there are at least 50,000 new cases a day. 50,000 leading up to 80,000, depending on, on which uh, case you're looking at or which study at least. Um, and that potentially there's a total of 500,000 cases in the UK at the moment. Um, so those numbers really, really are quite staggering. If you look at all the curves, etc., cetera, uh, ultimately PM's hands were tied. But what this is actually, Barry, is a very, very stark change in tone. Boris has been riding home this message of regional approach. Regional is better. Let's keep the rest of the economy running. And now switching very, very quickly to this national lockdown approach. Um, so ultimately, very, very big change in tone. He had been trying to ride this message home, trying to get business confidence, I guess, all of that kind of stuff happening. Uh, but ultimately, like we said, hands are maybe tied. So just in terms of the specifics, Barry, what we're actually facing here, this is going to be a one-month lockdown, very, very similar to the first. So ultimately, all non-essential shops are going to be closing. You must stay at home unless you meet one of those uh, particular measures. The only key difference that I see so far is that schools are going to remain open and obviously you know they've considered a whole lot of things when coming to that conclusion uh, but you know a lot of people happy about that a lot of people not happy about that uh, but yeah quite a strong lockdown level and uh, for me certainly not looking forward to. I'm sorry, man. That that is it's, it, it is devastating, especially when you you felt like things were going in the right direction, and all of a sudden you have to take a step back now and kind of go back to where you were. Um, I think this COVID thing is is really going to be uh, a real trial and error of all of these sorts yeah. of things, right? Every country is trying to deal with it in different ways, and like you say, the UK has had an interesting kind of path to get to this this point. And I think for Europe specifically, with so much inter-European travel, it, it, it's much harder, I think, to kind of control who's coming in and out of your borders yeah. than it is for a standalone country. Um, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons that, that you guys are, are having these sorts of these measures because of all the inter-European travel. But I think that this virus is not over and we have to, we have to be careful of kind of letting ourselves run away with the idea that life seems to slowly get back back to normal i'm finding it on this side it feels like things are slowly getting back to normal here but i'm trying to remind myself that it's it, it's we don't have a vaccine yet yep. we don't have a vaccine and without a vaccine unfortunately i don't think you're going to get to a stage where you can be fully in the clear and kind of put it out of your mind 
I think it's always going to come down to how do your citizens react? How does how do your your cities move? Are people actually taking care of themselves and the people yeah. around them? And I don't think this is going to be the f- the first second wave we're going to see around the world. I think we're going to see a lot more. Um, and I think that as as this year goes on, we have to keep reminding ourselves we haven't beaten this thing yet, and uh, that it's it's quite a bit of pill, bit, bit of pill to swallow. But unfortunately, when people's lives are on the line, you've, you've got to do what you've got to do. Yeah, I think you're completely right. I think the travel piece of it definitely does not help. And I mean, I was guilty of getting two quick trips in when I could, when I was actually allowed to based on the <laughs> rules at the time. Uh, but you're right. I, I definitely think that doesn't help. I mean, if we look at Southeast Asia, if we look at Australia and New Zealand, uh, who are doing things really, really well, and there's h- hardly any cases happening that side. And some of those countries, literally not even one. Um the, I mean, the common denominator, I'd say, is is definitely a strong, strong travel policy. And, uh, you know, coupled with that, a very effective track and trace system, uh, which we, we mm. clearly have not been able to get a handle on yet. Obviously, we've got these wonderful apps and they actually do work really well. Uh, the track and trace apps where if you could keep your Bluetooth on all the time, it scans the, the people you coming into contact with uh, you know whether intentionally or not and if subsequently one of them tests positive it pings your notification to say hey you need to stay at home it's time to isolate Uh, but getting the buy-in of everyone to actually download the app I think that's the problem here and uh, ultimately how do you get everyone to actually cooperate and download this app and uh, get that effective track and trace system once your case numbers are low enough Yep, that is that is the big debate, right? And that's the, that's the difficult thing to do is to kind of pull culture in a certain direction that they don't want to go. Yep. Like no one wants to have to worry about that stuff. But I'm curious to see what the reaction in the country is going to be over the next couple of weeks as people start to kind of obviously be angry and be upset about the fact that lockdown and then trying to process what this means for them going forward and whether maybe this will help to improve the buy-in. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it'll help people to kind of just take it a little bit easier, like rather rather keep your social circles smaller. And hopefully when you come out of the lockdown, people still don't go back to the same old, same old right, right again, right? You want to be able to kind of ease your way back into life. And uh, yeah, we'll see if this lockdown actually helps. See what it does yeah. to case numbers, see what happens to your hospitals. Um, and also to your economy, Chad. I, I, I'm wondering, like, do you know, do they put any money, extra money in here for people who are not going to be able to work or, or any kind of economic incentives? Because again, this is another month yep. of economic uh, disaster. Yeah, I mean, based on just the briefing yesterday, it looks like the current furlough scheme, which was due to expire yesterday, I think, is actually now going to be extended up until the end of this lockdown, essentially, which I think runs until the 2nd of December. So the lockdown comes into effect on Thursday. And like I said, there's a vote uh, in Commons on Wednesday, uh, which again is an interesting change to process. Uh, But you're, you're right. I mean, just in terms of the economy, I don't know if the furlough scheme necessarily touches all the points of uh, of relief. Ultimately, a lot of people are still paying rent. And I think under the regional approach, I might be wrong by this completely, but I think under the regional approach, a lot of companies who were kind of affected, their revenues were affected, they were not necessarily ordered to close, but uh, ultimately as a result of the measures, they weren't having enough people coming through the door. Uh, a lot of them were still getting kind of rent grants. Um, and I'm not entirely sure whether that kind of stuff is going to be in force with the furlough scheme as well. So a lot of tough questions here. A lot of businesses, I think, are going to really, really struggle to even open their doors after all of this is done. 
Um, it's just devastating when you actually think about it. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Um, twenty twenty just keeps hitting us across yeah. the face. Eh? It's been. It's been like it's. It, it's going to go down as one of the toughest years I think of our lifetimes. Um, and I think it's. It's the psychological impact, economic impact, and of course all the people who've lost their lives and lost their loved ones and stuff. It's. It's. It really has been a, a very trying time. Yeah. And uh, it's. It's reminded us of how fragile life is, how fragile our world is, like just the ability to lead a normal life we kind of take for granted when things are when things are good and uh when these things happen it's it really does take a huge toll and so i think for everyone in the uk you gotta buckle down you gotta get your exercise in order and make sure yep. your mental health is as good as possible and kind of yep. get back to some of those habits that you were in, in the first lockdown and do your best to kind of keep sane and keep safe during this period i think it's going to be a, a testing time for everyone's character and like how are you going to deal with this how are you going to react to this adversity um but it's one of those things that there's no other way through it you have to just have to dive yep. into it and just kind of deal with it as best you can and uh, hopefully it does the job. Hopefully that kind of takes the pressure off those 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 curves and brings them down to a more manageable level. Yeah, exactly. And I guess the stark distinction this time, Barry, is the fact that we're in winter now. We're not in spring. Uh, and so these days are going to be dark. It's going to be cold. Uh, it really is yeah. not the, the most ideal scenario to be looking at. But uh, like you say, we just have to do our part, uh, cooperate as much as possible. Um, and yeah, I mean, hopefully by the end of this, uh, lockdown government has some sort of effective track and trace plan because that's what you need uh, to to stem this virus so and then obviously we, we kind of cast our eyes forward and what we find Barry is Christmas we find Christmas in this very hazy uncertain uh, little bubble what is Christmas going to look like this year and I think a lot of families are, are quite concerned by that and obviously the governments are are thinking about that too yeah, definitely. I think a lot of families probably might not be able to celebrate together, which is a travesty, right? And Christmas is one of those times with so, so special to so many people around the world. And it's going to be a very different Christmas this year, as this whole year has been. I mean, this whole year has been throwing all of our old habits out the window, all of our goals and dreams for 2020 were thrown out the window. And it's been a, a means of survival, just trying to kind of make it, make the best you can out of a very difficult situation. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, the timing is not ideal, um, but unfortunately the virus doesn't care when Christmas is. Yeah. <laughs> the virus just keeps on going. And yeah. all we can do is, is do what, like make the best decision we can right now with the information at hand. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're in a lose-lose situation. No matter what decision they make, they're going to be vilified for it. But all you can do is look at the data that you have, make the best possible decision, and just hope that it's enough to kind of stem the, the, the exponential curve and kind of bring things back into a linear fashion. Completely agree. And like you said, that virus doesn't adjust to, to our plans. It, it just does its thing. <laughs> uh, but I mean, the interesting other arguments that I will find myself uh, seeing or hearing when this does happen, if there are special measures put in place for Christmas to allow people to have Christmas, which then could be quite worrying and, and damaging potentially to the government, is all of the other cultural holidays that have happened so far. And a lot of cultural holidays have not been able to happen. So how would you allow those to not happen and then make special arrangements for another? Yeah, it's it's so hard. We start making exceptions, right? Yeah. Um, especially even 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 the British, even the Britain's like a very high Christian denominated country. There's so much diversity Definitely. there, and there's so many other religions and kind of cultures that that, like you say, would would feel hard done by if that was yep. the case. Um, and so we'll have to watch and see what happens. Um, they've got some very difficult decisions to make over the next couple of months. 
Best case scenario, hopefully, Chad, by that point, we fixed it, you know? So let's hope for that for the moment. (laughs) Let's not be delusional, Barry. Although, we do have (laughs) some good news, and uh, you want to contribute some good news this time. Yeah, yeah. So talking about the vaccines, of course, the vaccines are are in development all around the world, and there's a thousand different variations. And it's hard to know how how to take some of these news (laughs) stories, because they're written by journalists, and journalists love to use good headlines, right? So I'm taking this with a pinch of salt, so don't quote me on this. But basically, the the vaccine coming out of Oxford University, which is one of the the higher regarded vaccines around the world, has shown some really promising results in the last couple of weeks. Um, Apparently, it's been used in some sort of trials and kind of given to older people who have some comorbidities and some sort of um, like are the highest at risk. And it's showing really promising results. And so according to the story, it sounds like if things continue going the way they're going in this trial, we might see that vaccine being tested in some hot UK hospitals towards the end of November. Okay. So that's a very, very promising um, piece of information. Hopefully that's the case. But again, I take it with a pinch of salt because these journalists <laughs> know how to write these headlines. And there's not enough information in that article to really give you a sense as to how those trials are going. Of course, these trials are very, very highly controlled and highly regulated. And so they don't want to announce anything before they've made sure the results actually as they think um, but apparently according to placebo it's doing quite well and so okay. hopefully Chad this might be the one and we'll get to see a tester towards the end of November okay that's really interesting and that's very positive let's uh, definitely keep our eyes peeled for that uh, but then obviously the, the next question Barry is always how quickly can they scale up production of these things um, so yeah really interesting I think Oxford University has certainly come up with some pretty pretty good things uh, during this crisis I mean including that steroid uh, confirmation that has you know at least helped the the fatality uh, of people who are on ventilators um so so that's yeah. really positive news and hopefully that's going to be a big help now we're going to cast our eyes a little bit barry down to the southern hemisphere why are you where you are sitting <laughs> with the overcast clouds this morning and uh, ultimately you know you guys are not immune from COVID either find yourself in a really really a tricky situation with the economy, all of that kind of stuff. There was a medium-term budget speech that happened this last week and three very interesting points to discuss. Yeah, definitely, Chad. It's it's a very, very mixed bag from the speech. Um, of course, in South Africa, our health, our case numbers are actually doing, they're looking okay, they're yep. looking not too bad, but the economic devastation has been absolutely terrible. Yep. Um, the kind of the, the major stat that the, the, the budget speech came out was that our GDP has lost about 8% sure. in, in, in 2020, which is a huge figure when it comes to GDP movements and really does not bode well for the future. It's very hard to see where growth is coming from. Huge unemployment. There's lots and lots of struggles here. And the kind of the next 10 years in South Africa's journey is going to be the economic rebuild, hopefully. Yeah. And that, that's what we have to focus on, right? And so this medium-term budget speech was kind of talking to some of those longer-than-a-year processes as how they're going to dig themselves out of this hole. And uh, as you said, there's a lot in this speech. So if you are South African, go and go and watch it. It really is, is, is important to kind of get a sense. But here are three points I think are quite crucial. Yep. The first one, Chad, <laughs> just blows my mind. And I don't know how to... I don't know what to say. I'm out of all words. South African Airways has been allocated even more money. Even more money again, once again. After talking about them for like five or six episodes in the past, Chad, they're back and apparently they've been allocated 6.5 billion rand to settle debt and another 10.5 billion rand to, to help with their business rescue proceedings. 
it's caused huge controversy here. There's been like widespread criticism of this. It, it's, it seems again to be throwing bad money after bad yep. money after bad money to this airline that just can't keep alive in a time where it's barely flying, like in a time where the COVID has kind of destroyed travel altogether. And so SAA at the moment are kind of only doing expatriation flights. They don't really have a lot of the routes around the world. They're not really in operation and yet they're throwing more and more money at it. Pravin Gordon, who, who announced or kind of was, was responsible for this bailout, has tried to kind of stem the tie and try to explain that this is not trying to relaunch the airline. This money is not designed to kind of get SAA back on its feet. The idea is just to get it to the kind of a, a zero point, to so like a, a neutral point where an equity investor can come in and buy it. Um, and, and that's kind of the route they're trying to go. So that's the reasoning for it. Um, but Chad, it's still, it's been met with wide criticism and I don't know how, I don't know what to say. It's just crazy, especially when you listen to uh, the thinking of how they got this 10 and a half billion together and what they've ultimately done is not gone out to borrow more money. They've essentially made cuts in other sections of the budget, other sections which are important, Barry. They've taken money from policing and getting your crime under control, which is a big thing in South Africa, education, all of that kind of stuff cuts on those fronts uh, like you say to rescue this airline or not even rescue this airline just to throw money at it uh, where you know in a business rescue process ultimately there's a lot of protection for companies that are insolvent where ultimately yeah a lot of creditors are not going to get their full uh, percentage returns you know they're going to get a cent in the rand but the government's taking a different approach here where there is protection ultimately for the company which is SAA, and ultimately those creditors who took on risk, uh, you know, as in any other commercial arrangement, ultimately that's just how it works. Whereas in this case, the government are, are saying, well, actually, you know, let's try and minimize the, the losses for, for creditors, which is interesting. Obviously, I don't know all of the creditors, potentially government themselves are one. Uh, it's an interesting state of play. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't think any of us know what the actual details are. That's what makes it so difficult to talk about is because, I mean, I, I'm, I mean I'm, in, I'm in finance and I still don't understand exactly how business rescue should work. I, I still can't get a grasp as to like what are the different incentives you're playing with and what are the levers you can pull and, yep. and how do you do a process like this? And so it's it's easy to look at a, a, a big number like that and kind of think it's completely ridiculous. I'd like to I'd like to hope there's some logic somewhere. I'd like to hope that someone has got some reasons for this. But from a PR perspective and from the outsider's view, like the person on the street, when they see this and the country is in, in turmoil and they see this kind of this this amount of taxpayer money being spent on this airline, it just it just doesn't come across well. And it kind of it's it's it really does make people upset, especially those those people who are losing their jobs and have lost all sorts of things during this economic process. We've had lots talking about the corruption and all the the money that's been borrowed to kind of help people. And then you're just reallocating budget again to yep. to, to, to this airline. Um, and so, yeah, I'm a little bit frustrated. By, um, I'm very frustrated <laughs> by this. Um, and I don't actually know what the route forward is. I don't know how SAA is going to be bought by somebody. Um, I don't know what kind of equity investors looking for this sort of investment um, because I think it's a bit of a mess at the moment. Yeah. The plans there are really so hard to, to understand, Barry, like we, we're trying to do, we're trying to make logic of the that which currently <laughs> has none. Um, and that is a very yeah. tricky proposition indeed. So yeah, we'll, we'll keep ours peeled again, uh, as always. Now, the next thing, Barry, I, I couldn't believe my ears when I was hearing this. Obviously, a large portion of your budget goes to paying off interest. And when listening to the debt to GDP forecast of the next couple of years, 
That's scary. Yeah, definitely, Chad. I think it's it, it's not news to us. I mean, our debt numbers have been horrible for yep. a long time now, but they keep getting higher, and COVID's been a whole other thing because we have to borrow so much money to try and help keep the economy alive. So our debt-to-GDP ratio is up to 95%, Chad. Great. So what that means is that um, the amount of debt that you have on the books is 95% of the total amount of money being produced in the country, which means that there is zero room for growth. Like if you read some of the experts from the World Bank, they kind of say that 77% it's probably like the max okay. to get to a point and anything above that it starts to really hamper your growth long term and so 95 is obviously way above that and it's a serious concern it really is a hole that's very very difficult to dig out of if anyone's ever been in debt you know how difficult yep. it is once you're in that hole to kind of claw your way out yep. and try and find a way out it's very very challenging and when we see an economy that's 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 lost eight percent in this last year and, and it's very looking very hard to see where the growth is going to come from to get back to where we were that debt number is very scary. And so it's one of those things where that has to be the main priority. And I think it's one of the main things that the finance ministry are trying to do. Yeah. And in the third point, one of the reasons, one of the ways they're trying to do this is trying to tackle some of the costs in the, in, in the budget and yeah. trying to bring those down. And so moving on to the public wage bill, which is kind of the very controversial piece, Tito Mbwene, the finance minister, announced that he's putting a proposal forward to have wages for public workers frozen for three years. Okay. So no increases for three years to try and bring that wage bill under control. There's been a lot of talk over the last couple of years as the, the public service is very bloated. There's lots and lots of, obviously they try to employ as many people as they can, but the efficiencies aren't there and they aren't getting the same sort of like effect and ROI on those investments as they should. Definitely. And also the fact that the South African tax base is so small out of the 52 billion people, like only a, a very small percentage are actually paying any tax at all. Um, and that's because of the economic situation of the country, of course. And so it's hard to see where the extra revenue is going to come from. If you don't have growth, if you don't have a, a good tax-paying base, how are you going to get out of that debt in the first place? And how are you going to get that to a more manageable level? Um, I, I certainly wouldn't want to be in Tito's shoes right now. That is a job and a half. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, just like you said, I don't think there, you know, realistically is any good prospect of collecting extra revenue from taxes. Like you say, because of everyone's situation at the moment, if you're telling the wealthy that they need to be taxed even more, uh, where at the moment the taxes are pretty high and we've just seen those immigration rates soar over the last couple of years. Uh, ultimately, that's one very good way of making people uh, leave again and, and find you know cheaper tax places to live. Um, ultimately, the only realistic way it looks to currently be is to drop the money that gets spent on corruption and, like you say, drop the money on that bloated uh, wage bill. And it seems like freezing it for the next three years, yes, that's going to avoid an inflationary increase, all of that stuff, but that doesn't address the fact that at the moment that wage bill is bloated and could be cut a heck of a lot. Like you said, there's a lot of inefficiency in there. The kind of market value for some of the wages that are going out is just doesn't meet uh, what's happening in, in private practice as well. And also when we look at COVID and the current crisis, people in the public sector have taken no pay cuts at all. Uh, whereas in the private sector, you just hear story and story of, uh, of pay cuts in this crisis. Yeah, that, that's what makes this PR difficult is that, like you say, in the private sector, you, you don't have a choice. Like you, you cut costs where you can. Yeah. In the public sector, you, you have a little bit more kind of support. You have a little bit more 
because um, you're closer to where the money's coming from, right? Yep. So you've got a better chance of getting getting benefiting from that. Um, and so obviously the trade unions have gone berserk over this kind of proposal and they want to try and fight it with all they can because they're look, trying to look after their members. Um, but it really is a, a difficult situation because like you say, where is that revenue going to come from? Um, we have to see growth. We, we Somehow we have to figure out how to get the economy to grow. We have to create more opportunities. We have to look for more foreign investment. We need, we need money to come in because reallocating budgets and, and freezing wage bills, that's just treating symptoms. Yep. All you're doing is kicking the can down the road one exactly. more year and maybe you're saving a little bit on, on, that, on that one year. But over the next 10 to 20 years, we have to, we have to see growth in the economy. That, 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 is, that is the only thing that's going to save us. Like there's no one that's going to come in and kind of bail us out. There's no, there's no um, significant increase in foreign investment that I can see. Um, and so we have to find a way to get that economy to move again. Um, and that's going to be a long, arduous process. It needs like real structures in place. It needs real leadership. It needs to get rid of all the money we're wasting, all the taxpayer money that's going into people's pockets. Yep. Um, it's yeah, it's a, it's going to be a challenging few years ahead, Chad. And and this budget speech was a reminder to all of us as to how deep the hole South Africa actually is in. Yeah, it's fascinating, and uh, we do hope always that these things, uh, you know, ultimately become less of a problem in the future. But we have to be realistic. We have to look at the current uh, state of play as well. And uh, I just hope you guys can pull things together and get things going again. Um, but yeah, certainly, certainly a tricky position to be in. Now, the last thing that we wanted to chat about that happened this past week, Barry, I know we've been talking for a while already and we, we are still <laughs> in the first section, but you know, there's lots to cover here, lots of juice and detail. Uh, the last thing we wanted to chat about is basically Johnny Ive from Apple, who was ultimately credited with a lot of the good design choices that happened this past week. I saw the story pop up in my feed as well, and I was like, what the heck? <laughs> yes, yeah, so Johnny I, for those who don't know, he was the chief design officer, basically, of Apple yeah. for, uh, I think, like 20 years, some, okay. some crazy long period. <laughs> and he was like at the helm for, for right from the beginning of the iPhone, or even the iPod, right through the iPhone, the iPad, etc. And it's had a huge influence on that company. He used to work very closely with Steve Jobs and yeah. was one of the kind of the key decision makers in those, in, those, in those times to really kind of bring about all the design innovations that Apple presented and if you think about apple as a company design has been where they've stood a sort of sort of part right the design the user experience all of that stuff that's what's made apple who they are Definitely. and so johnny ive has a lot to a lot to take credit for and so he really is very highly regarded in the space one of the like the giants of the, the design world and he left apple last year and started his own design firm to kind of take on some more projects and kind of i think kind of ease out of the the crazy apple lifestyle <laughs> And his very first project is with another behemoth, Chad, is the company Airbnb. So Airbnb, of course, have, uh, well, they've struggled in COVID, of course, because of the, no one's been able to move or travel, sure. but they've got this huge amount of inventory around the world. People will rent uh, places or couches or <laughs> rooms or even like experiences, like yep. lots of new products yep. that Airbnb are coming out on. And they are trying to figure out how do they pivot into this post-COVID world? How do they try and figure out where their next future is? And so they brought Johnny in to kind of do a full redesign of everything from the app experience itself right to their experiences and products, their new kind of food-related stuff and all of, the, all of their bits and pieces. And so I'm quite excited to see what Johnny's going to bring to Airbnb. I mean, Airbnb is a, a very millennial-focused brand, and so I'm excited to see what, what he's going to do with it. 
Yeah, I'm also excited as well, Barry, but the what the heck part of my reaction is is just, I just don't see how this fits. Like we said, he's come up with some of the great, great designs that we've seen coming out of Apple, actual physical products as far as I know, and on the software side. And obviously, you know, Airbnb is purely software based. And I personally don't think that the, the software is not aesthetically pleasing as it is at the moment. I don't know if there's a basis to go from the ground up and redesign it. It's been a company that has been really successful. If we look at how they've essentially revolutionized the way we think about accommodation and travel and ultimately even maybe earning some money in short-term rentals, uh, they've done really well. So I personally don't see where there's any extra you know, potential or any extra opportunity for them uh, to capitalize on this kind of redesign. Am I missing something? I don't know, Chad. I don't know. I mean, I think that there must be constant conversations trying to figure out where the future of the company is. I think what's interesting about Airbnb is that even though we know them as this kind of rental and very much accommodation based, they're, they're making some really big steps in other product categories, yeah. right? So looking at the experiences, looking sure. at their travel and their tourism stuff, they are expanding very quickly into lots of different things. I was actually lucky enough when I was in San Francisco last year, I got to visit the Airbnb headquarters because okay. I had a friend who was working there. So I went through kind of a tour and kind of saw the space and was very inspired and impressed by what they've yep. built there. And the, the sense that I got was that they are looking way bigger than just accommodation. And so my gut feel is that they've got some products in the wait in the waiting room that they right. haven't announced yet or they haven't kind of shown to the, to the market yet. And I'm guessing that's what Johnny is helping with, trying to make sure the design is, is world-class. Right. I think when it comes to design as well, it's, it's it's much a, it's very much an art, right? It's not not as much of a science as we'd like to think. Um, I, obviously, there's science when it comes to designing like engineering type products, sure. trying to figure out how it all works. But when it comes to the aesthetic, when it comes to user experience, it's very much like an art. And so, what I would say is that I think Johnny has this the skills to be able to transfer to anything Definitely, basically, yeah. and kind of apply his philosophy and his his the way he thinks about how to design products, um, regardless of what it is, whether it's virtual, whether it's um, in, in in person, whether it's an actual physical thing. Um, and so, yeah, it's 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 almost like two titans of industries kind of coming together. And, yeah. and I think there must be some cool stuff there. Otherwise, he wouldn't have taken the role. He wouldn't have taken the job. Um, and so we'll have to wait and see and see what Airbnb comes up with in the next couple of months. Very, very exciting. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely been looking at the experiences and how those have uh, kind of scaled up over the last uh, couple of years. And actually, while we were in Italy a few weeks, months ago, Barry, gosh, I don't even know how long ago that was. <laughs> <laughs> um, we did do an experience. We did a pasta making course where you go with a local who lives there and you know has got this recipe that's been passed down for generations and learn how to actually make gnocchi and some of the desserts and stuff. And those types of experiences really, really do have a, a way of altering your your perception and ex completely your experience of uh, of going away on holiday. You know, being at a foreign place. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's, and also the revenue margins on that are so much higher, yeah. right? If you're able to do those kind of experiences, like they are one of a kind type things and they're very intimate and they're very kind of um, kind of based off the, the locals in, in those cities. Yeah. And so that is how you build that marketplace that gives Airbnb a moat that really can help them compete against anyone who's trying to compete with them. Like that's what hotels can't really do that. Hotels, you've got like brochures in on at the front desk and it's very much a, it's not a very intimate kind yeah. of feeling because it's much more professional whereas in Airbnb like you say you can meet some really incredible locals and have really really special experiences you wouldn't have been able Definitely. to do otherwise and so I think Airbnb are trying to use their their brand and their kind of their scale to do so, more of those sorts of interesting things 
And that's where I think their revenue is going to come from more in the future because, of course, regulators are trying to clamp down. They're trying to tax them. They're trying to make sure that they're paying the same sort of levies as hotels are. And so my guess is that their margins are being squeezed on accommodation. Right. But what they can kind of increase their margins on are other kind of value-adding products, which will be quite exciting. Really exciting stuff. Talking about stuff, let's move on to some stuff we found interesting. Stuff I found interesting. Chad, last week we chatted about PayPal getting into the crypto yes, space. And I don't know if this is related, but we <laughs> saw a pretty crazy thing happen this past week that I thought was fascinating. So we all know that the Bitcoin ledger is completely public, right? So you can see every transaction on there. There's yep. a record of every single one. And when it comes to Bitcoin, that's kind of the key differentiator. Like that's the whole point is to be able to verify if transactions are legit yep. because it's all on a public ledger. And so you can see every single transaction. And so when a crazy transaction happens, the the whole crypto community goes berserk and it becomes part like it becomes a meme almost it's like who was it what was the transaction about etc etc we saw a transaction this week chad for 1.1 billion dollars oh with a b gosh. not with the m with a b 1.1 billion dollars was transferred from one bitcoin account <sighs> to another and it's a terrifying number it really is a terrifying number um but what makes it scary and what makes it revolutionary and, and really really uh, weird is the transaction costs for sending that $1.1 billion. Now, if you were to try and send a billion dollars through any other platform, you would incur crazy costs yeah. because the, the infrastructure needed to kind of move between those bank accounts is significant. On Bitcoin, Chad, that $1.1 billion transaction cost that person $3.64. That's just insane. What the heck is that transaction? What is it representing? <laughs> Who is shifting $1 billion from one side of the earth to the other? That's just incredible. And yeah, you're completely right. Uh, I mean, in terms of transaction fees, uh, assuming that is crossing borders, we're talking about foreign exchange fees and all of that type of stuff. It, it just is, is unfathomable. $3, $3, $4 $1 billion is insane. Um, that, that's just crazy. I, I don't know what else to say. It, it talks to that idea that, that money is not physical anymore. We're well, well past that point where money is a physical thing. It, it very much now is a piece of information. It's, it's a data point. It's, it's a number in a spreadsheet, if you think about it like that. And so there really shouldn't be high costs for, for money being transferred because it just is like an email. It, it's like an exchange of information. And that's what the vision of cryptocurrency is, is that being able to send money is, is as easy as sending a text message or an email. And so that is kind of what it points to. Like you say, for a billion dollars to go across a border or to go kind of from different accounts and regulators can't touch it, um, no one can get their hands on it, no one can tax it necessarily, it, it really is a terrifying new world. And, and if this has become the norm, it's going to open up a whole new can of worms because how many businesses out there make their money by transferring money? Right, yeah. like this, this this past week, I, I I did some work for a client and got paid via PayPal, and was flabbergasted to see how much of my money PayPal took for yeah. that transaction, and I was comparing it to this just because <laughs> it happened in the same week, and I I completely I, I lost my mind because this 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 could change everything yeah. in the sense, and this there's a huge industry around the world designed around payments and remittances and kind of moving money across borders, moving money between accounts, and they make a lot of money on it because they charge these crazy commissions 
solutions to these crazy markups um, because of this old infrastructure, this old kind of legacy stuff. And so the future of crypto is is super exciting and, and there's a lot going on. And every single week there seems to be more and more stuff. And this transaction is just one of those blue whales that's just kind of, you can't <laughs> ignore. You have to look at it, right? Yeah, gosh. And yeah, just looking at the, the little payment summary that you've attached here, Barry, I've never seen any of these type of Bitcoin payment summaries before. Um, so it's a lot of kind of fuzzled up characters. Obviously, those are the referring to the wallets, <laughs> I'm guessing. But it looks like it was split yeah. between two wallets. Um, so do you think that is one person who has two wallets and wants to, I don't know, get paid in that kind of way? Or do you, do you think this transaction happened to, you know, two different individuals? It's I've, I have no idea, Chad. I could, <laughs> I could speculate, but I, I, I don't have any information here. I think it, it, I can't... I struggle to think of a billion dollar transaction yeah. that someone yeah. would make. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's more likely that they've got multiple accounts and they're just kind of spreading their spreading right. their money so that if one gets hacked, they can't <laughs> can't get into the others maybe. maybe. Um, but it's one of those things where no one no one knows. I mean, you, you can trace what that wallet has done over time, but there's no way to tie it to a person or tie it to a country or any of that stuff. And that's the beauty of, of crypto itself. Um, all you get is, the, the, like you said, those long alphanumerics which would represent that particular Bitcoin wallet. And uh, that's all you get, and you get to see that for that three point six four, for that three dollars, basically, <laughs> um, you were able to send a billion dollars anywhere you want in the world. Just, just insane. All right, some other things that we found interesting this week, Barry. I came across a trailer on Twitter that is just epic. If you've ever seen <laughs> an epic trailer before, which is relevant and obviously uh, very doomsdayish, but just epic and uh, ultimately i uh, cannot wait until it's released so i can actually watch the movie um but yeah it's a michael bay trailer a movie called songbird and essentially it is dealing with the ultimate worst case scenario of covid19 and some would say too soon <laughs> that was my first reaction when you sent it to me, Chad. I said, too soon. It's too soon for pandemic movies. I know everyone's dying to release them. I yeah. know everyone's been writing them in lockdown. Um, it's yeah, my, my, my mind is too soon. But then again, Contagion did really, really well. Yeah. Like Contagion was a movie that came out a couple of years ago and became popular during the pandemic because it was quite kind of prophetic in a way. And so I understand why they're making it. And I can't deny the trailer looks insane. <laughs> like, I can't deny it looks like a really cool movie. But it's like, oh. Oh, it, it's, it, are we at that point where we're starting to watch these Hollywood movies yet? We're not even out of the pandemic yeah. yet. It's a very, very strange thing. <laughs> it really is. Well, definitely go and check out the trailer, if anything else. Whether you have any intention of watching it or not, just spend the one or two minutes just watching the trailer because, uh, yeah, I certainly did enjoy it. Just in terms of putting a bit of perspective into the current uh, restrictions that we have and where we actually think it might be hectic at the moment, oh boy, there's a lot of potential. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, there's going to be a whole genre of this stuff going forward, Chad. Pandemic-related novels and movies and all sorts of stuff. So that's yeah. definitely going to have a, a huge rise after this period. Definitely, Barry. Well, on your side of the pond, you have been able to do something fairly normal and sit in a theater and watch a performance. And I'm very, very jealous about it, Barry. But why don't you talk <laughs> us through the experience and, and what it was like? 
Chad, I, I find, I mean, if, if, if you know me, you know that I love theater yeah. and it's one of the biggest things I've missed over this last, the whole year, basically. And it was such a surreal moment to be sitting in a theater, mask on, of course, but yeah. sitting in a theater and watching something on stage. It really was a really special moment. And I actually got quite emotional by it because yeah. I was sitting there like just reflecting on the year that we've yeah. had and the fact that all these artists on stage that just have not been able to perform at all. And uh, so it's, it was a really, really cool experience and it made it even better because I was watching the infamous, the incredible Ntlovo Youth Choir, which is this choir from Limpopo here in South Africa that went to America's Got Talent, got picked up by America's okay. Got Talent and made it to the final of America's Got Talent and really, really was an inspiration for the whole world. Um, they went viral right at the beginning of their careers, well, not beginning of their careers, but what got them onto America's Got Talent was that they did a Zulu version of Ed Sheeran's Shape of You okay. in a very, very South African version. And it's an incredible video. Like the amount of energy, the amount of enthusiasm and the South African spin on an Ed Sheeran song was just incredible. So that went viral and that's when they got scouted and they kind of went across okay. and did very, very well on America's Got Talent. And they've now become a very, very popular uh, choir that sings all around the world and obviously not in COVID times, but kind of before COVID, they were doing lots and lots of shows around the world and really, really doing amazing stuff. And why I wanted to chat about them was their story is so special, but it's also so sad on the other on the other side of things. So the reason it's special is because these guys are aging from say 11 years old to about 18 years old. So like youngsters, right? Really, really young guys, but all in um, guys and girls, um, all from one town, one little township called Motse in Lumpopo. Okay. So they're all from one area. A lot of them don't have like any possibilities. They don't, a lot of them aren't educated. A lot of them don't have the kind of the opportunities to go and do um, anything like of substance. They're really struggling. Limpopo is one of the, the poorest parts of our country. And the, for some reason, they were able to kind of pull themselves up. And, and through uh, an old choir master from the Jurassic Boys Choir who found them and kind of has turned them into this professional outfit, he has now, they've now been able to make their choir actually profitable and actually okay. economically viable to be able to provide for their families back home. So that is such a special kind of story, and I hope that they continue to do the stuff. They take these these pop songs, Chad. These, they, 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 at the concert, they took Aretha Franklin's Respect okay. and did a South African version on it, bringing dancing and and all sorts of really really cool pieces of South African culture into those the music and it really was this really special occasion. The second side of the, the story, which makes it a little bit sad, was this idea that they had to go halfway across the world in order to yeah. be recognised in yeah. South Africa. So it, it's it's one of those things where all of a sudden, because they were on the America's Got Talent yep. stage, then they became popular in South Africa, even though they had been in South Africa performing for years before that. And it kind of talks to this a little bit of this inferiority complex where we, we often look to the US, we often look to other kind of countries to tell us what culture we should care about, yeah. right? And so the moment they make it there, then all of a sudden they can start making it here. But for years they were doing, doing what they're doing right now, but not getting the recognition they deserve here in the country. And so I found that a really interesting dichotomy as to I'm really proud of them. It really makes me proud to be South African, to, to watch them. But it really is sad that they had to go to Los Angeles to go and win a competition there in order for us to take any notice of them. Yeah. Well, it really is just a great story, Barry. I mean, overarching, great story. They've risen up from nothing and ultimately are now a worldwide outfit, which is very inspiring. And like you say, nice to see them on the world stage as well. But you're completely right. I think it is just tragic that we ultimately rely on uh, approval from another nation uh, because we somehow, I don't know, that's just become our 
guiding North Star, and it, it, it shouldn't be. Um, it's the kind of influence we've seen, even in South African music, on kind of American accents, in the, the sort of tonality of, of what we're singing. Uh, there's just been so much influence coming from that side, and when you actually break it down to... Uh, you know, looking at where rhythms came from and certain genres, looking at house music, which is now extremely popular, uh, you know, in a kind of dance sort of format across the world, uh, looking at where the roots of that type of music is. And ultimately, we should not be looking there as the, the guiding North Star. There's a lot of heritage and a lot of new things that we have to, to contribute. And I don't know what the solution is there, Barry. I don't know how you change that kind of perception at the moment uh, that the US has everything or the US or the UK uh, ultimately have all of the top of the pops. I mean, ultimately, I know there was a big drive on the radio stations in South Africa a few years ago to play, I think, 90% South African music. Uh, the reactions to that were not good. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a difficult one, and I don't. Obviously, South Africa is a, is a big victim of it, but I think it's I think it's worldwide. Yep. The amounts of control that the US has over media in general is staggering, right? When you think of Hollywood, when you think of kind of the the music coming out of, the, you think of LA and all the entertainers that come out of that very very small part of the world, they have an, a disproportionate amount of influence, and and unfortunately, it's it's one of those things where American media is is very very dominant. If I look at my media consumption, Chad. Yeah. Yeah. 99% of it is American stuff, yeah. right? When it comes to podcasts, when it comes to books that I read, when it comes to movies, when it comes to music, like it's hugely, hugely dominated by America. And so like you say, I don't think... I. I don't know how you get out of it. I think for South Africa, what we have to work on is just belief in ourselves, mm. right? One of the main pillars of that concert, one of the messages they were trying to bring across as the choir was that we have to believe in ourselves that we can compete at this global level because we can but we kind of hold ourselves back because we have this inferiority complex about being, are we from Africa or we from the third world or we kind of a developing country, yep. all of these kind yep. of these mindsets that we, that we get in the way of what could be really special stuff. South African music is, is some of the best music in the world. If you think about it. And unfortunately it hasn't got the recognition it deserves is because it's, it's stayed here. Yep. It's very much been stayed here. It hasn't seen a stage elsewhere. And so all of a sudden the, the, the youth choir goes to America's Got Talent and now they're performing all around the world. They were telling us about during COVID, they obviously couldn't go and do all the performances live, but they had built this green screen studio in the middle okay. of Limpopo, like in the middle, like <laughs> they said outside there were goats and sheep and stuff. And inside there was all this fancy green okay. screen stuff. And they were doing live performances, live concerts to Singapore, to the UK, to Australia, to countries all around the world, making a really good living for themselves. And so it takes a little bit of belief and then it takes some professionalism to kind yep. of say, okay, cool, we've got something special here. How do we package it in a way that can then be sold to other consumers, right? One of the biggest criticisms of, of, of the, the choir was the kind of songs they sang on America's Got Talent were very Americanized songs. Yep. Um, but that's what they had to do to win that competition. And, and, and what kind of what choir master was saying was that the producers were forcing them to pick certain sure, songs sure. and they would have to try and put their own spin on it. But um, in order to kind of make the way throughout the world, they kind of have to put on these Americanized type performances. And so it's a weird balance you've got to find between believing yourself and what makes you special, but understanding the market that you're selling into. Um, unfortunately, no one in South Africa is paying to go and see choirs. Yep. That's just It just doesn't happen. Uh, yep. Unfortunately, we don't have the audiences to go and see that. And so that's why they don't get the recognition. Whereas overseas, there is an audience for choirs around the world. And uh, yeah, it's interesting to think about like what do, 
what do South Africans think of themselves in, in terms of the global stage? And how do we take those people with lots and lots of talent? If you think about the fact that all of those choir members come from one small town in Limpopo, imagine how many other sure. talented people we have sure. that just aren't seeing those opportunities. Um, and so, yeah, for me, it's, it's a mix of optimism for the potential of our country, but a little sadness as well that we have to go halfway across yeah. the world to kind of recognize it back home. Yeah, you're right. And uh, I, I think you're completely right when you mention it's not just a South African thing. I think a lot of nations have been struggling with this as well. But over recent time, I think there are some positive things happening. I think we look at tracks like, you know, Jerusalem and we look at the, the success of the Ndlova Youth Choir. We look at even Jeremy Loops, who's now worldwide phenomenon as well. Mm -hmm. um, and on the back of that, on some other nations, we look at how big K-pop is around the world, uh, which is a very yeah. much, you know, Korean specific uh, genre. Uh, and so I think there yep. is some positive news in the space. I think we are realizing that the world is bigger than the lens we currently, uh, you know, view it as. Um, and, and that's only a positive thing. We need more diversity in the world. Definitely. And that, that's a factor of the barriers to entry being brought down and down yep. and down. You no longer have to get a big record deal at a, at a big US exactly. um, record company in order to make it. You can put your music up on SoundCloud or on Spotify or on Apple Music and, and find an audience for yourself. Sure. And so the internet and kind of the globalization has democratized this stuff. And K-pop's a great example of that. K-pop is an absolute yeah. phenomenon. Yeah. It is absolutely massive. And that's what we want. We want more of those kind of very niche things getting blown up to a major stage and I think we will see more and more of it. And I just hope South Africa has a small piece of that pie, Chad. Completely agree, Barry. Well, let's cast our eyes ahead. Looking ahead. Alrighty, time to look ahead, Barry, but not in the usual way that we do. We're not looking at technology as always, unfortunately, which I know we love <laughs> so much. Uh, but we're looking ahead at our life on this planet that we are living on, this wonderful planet that is Earth. And essentially looking at the sustainability of that life. We've been introspecting a heck of a lot more than any previous generation before us. I suppose we have a lot more data available. We kind of now know the effect of the things that we are doing on the planet. And so we are talking a lot more about it. We're becoming a lot more conscious of this discussion and ultimately, in this vein, there's been a documentary that's been released on Netflix, uh, I think two or three weeks ago, by the absolute authority that is David Attenborough, the uh, smooth, sulky voice that we like to watch when we talk about nature documentaries. He's had a remarkable <laughs> life, Barry. I know you said you've been really keen to get stuck into this one as well. Yeah, definitely. I, I need to watch it. I'm a huge David Attenborough fan. Like you say, he's a preeminent expert in this field. And uh, he, when everyone, whenever he has something to say, I really want to find out. So I'm keen to hear your thoughts, Chad, and kind of tee it up for me. Let me know what's, what it's all about um, because I'm very keen to, to figure it out. Well, firstly, you have to watch it. If anyone here has a Netflix subscription and you haven't seen it yet, I don't know what you're doing with your time. You have to go and watch it uh, because ultimately what it is is... David Attenborough's witness statement, that's how he's phrased it, it's his witness statement. If you think about it, Barry, he has lived in the perfect era, the year that he was born and his current age at the age of 93, he has seen a heck of a lot. And some of it, to be honest, for me, I thought happened way before he was born. Ultimately, when you talk about history and, and if you haven't, I suppose, throughout your life, put a lot of effort into understanding what happened when Sometimes you have a bit of a blurred perception of what's happened and, and where it sits into the, the timeline of this life that we live. 
Uh, but ultimately, it's his witness statement. He, we know he's had an incredible life. He's traveled the world. He's seen all sorts of weird and wonderful creatures that we don't even know. We didn't even know existed kind of thing. I certainly didn't. <laughs> um, and he's, he's really just casted this lens to a lot of people who live in cities and don't escape much to what is out there? What is out in the wild? What does this beautiful world have to offer us? And so... With that experience and with those credentials behind him, I think he's perfectly placed, Barry, to put out this witness statement um, that ultimately is his observations on what is happening, what are we doing wrong, what's the scale of the problem we're facing, and what can we do. Uh, so first and foremost, as a person who loves good storytelling, and obviously you, Barry, really love good storytelling and I've been trying to get better, better at telling good stories myself so <laughs> I'm hyper focused on Barry uh, and so obviously when I was watching this uh, took more notice than I think I would usually but they've really got the storytelling down in this documentary uh, starting at the scenes of an abandoned property in Ukraine where Chernobyl happened one of uh, humankind's biggest mistakes ultimately Starting over there and, and letting this narrative unfold of his experiences, his uh, observations throughout his life. Um, and obviously, as all good stories do, wrapping it up over there as well. Uh, and, you know, showing you, I guess, what happens with nature when humans don't exist. And what happens? Well, nature just continues. I had no idea, Barry, but if you look at what the scenes of Chernobyl look like right now, there's all these abandoned buildings because people haven't lived there you know, since it happened. But ultimately, there are trees that are growing uh, in the middle of nowhere. There's horses and, you know, all nature has returned. Uh, so that is just magnificent. But anyway, what are my key observations of watching this documentary? <laughs> well, ultimately, it's not just a doomsday documentary, Barry. There are some very, very good solutions. I think he does very well at putting into perspective our current situation and the mistakes that we are currently making and by drawing a parallel to something like Chernobyl which was a mistake ultimately to say that hey there are some things we can do right now it's not too late but if we don't this is what the world is going to look like uh, and obviously this has been a discussion that has been picking up in intensity and focus uh, and I honestly think there's going to be a lot of buy-in as a result of this so what are his solutions ultimately well ultimately to switch to renewable energy. There is no reason we cannot be relying 100% on renewable energy. Now, I know the infrastructure spend is, is not cheap, but ultimately, once you've got those solar panels in there, you've got the wind farms, you've got the hydroelectric plants, they're there, Barry, and they're there for, for future generations to use. Ultimately, that's the only way that we, we kind of use this renewable energy to keep us going. There's no reason why we can't. And the point that he makes is why on earth are we letting our pension funds and why are we investing in companies that generate oil and gas and coal and all of that kind of stuff? We ultimately have a decision here and we can make that choice. Yeah, I think it's a really key piece of this whole sustainability movement, Chad, is trying to figure out how do you fix the incentives so that people like us can actually make a difference with our money, with our choices, with the way we live our lives. So much of the sustainability stuff feels out of our hands. When we think about climate change, it's hard to figure out, what do I do? Like me sitting in my house in Johannesburg, how do I stop the pandas from dying? Or how do I stop the rainforest from being cut down? And, and it's hard to kind of get a sense as to what impact can I make? And that means that everyone kind of abdicates responsibility and we never make any, any progress. 
And so pensions is a great idea, just like a small little piece to kind of make sure that the money we're sending to investing, the money we're spending, are we doing it in ways that we can have our conscience about, right? Can we really be intentional about how we do that? Um, and that's the only way we can move forward is by people taking responsibility for their small piece of, of the pie, their small drop in the ocean and making the best possible decision. Because once you start shifting pension funds, once you start shifting incentives like that, you force the world to change because the free market will do that, right? Yeah. The moment the money's not going there, people have to make a change. They have to pivot in order to survive. Yeah. And so that's the way you change the market dynamics and that's how you change incentives. That that's, that's how you pull culture. That's how you change the way we do things um it's not easy it's really not easy and it's it's a reason we we find it so difficult to fight climate change because it's this global thing this global problem that doesn't really have anyone you can point a finger at it's too big of a problem and so that's one great example of just a small little piece that you can try and change the market incentives and and yeah i think it's a good idea absolutely so that's that's the first thing barry Uh, and i agree with you i think that is something that is very easy as consumers the more we speak about these things the more pressure we put on uh, you know, fund managers ultimately to put our money where we want it to be. Ultimately, that's where you start to see these waves happening, and I think it's happening. I think there's a big wave uh, shifting from uh, you know the old ways of generating electricity into the new renewable space. The next way, Barry, is by looking at ultimately what we've done to forests and biodiversity. Throughout this documentary, he explains why we need the wild to be the wild. All of the various uh, balancing acts that happen and the the roles that all of these different parts of the globe play in keeping our climate the same. He mentions that in the last 10,000 years, Barry, in the last 10,000 years, the temperature has not moved by one degree. Whereas if you look at in our lifetimes, Barry, all of a sudden we've seen those temperatures rise at this crazy pace when you put it into that kind of perspective. And so he explains this balancing act that nature has and how it keeps the temperature the same. And uh, one of the things that we've been doing is obviously ripping down these biodiverse forests and putting up these same sort of palm trees. Because obviously we've got the various applications that we need these things for. And obviously we don't see as much value in the biodiverse uh, you know, forests just being there. But ultimately, there's so many different ecosystems that depend on that being the wild. So essentially, we need to stop doing that. We need to stop ripping out, you know, the forest. We need to return the land to the wild. And like his example with Chernobyl, when we do that, all we need to do, there's not a lot that we need to do, Barry. We need to just stop doing anything, stop cutting things down, just stop doing anything, and it will return to normal. And one good example is those palm trees that I mentioned, Barry. But another good example is what we eat. We talk about beef. We talk about the amount of space that beef needs. And when you actually look at countries like the Netherlands, who are doing some wonderful things in the field of farming, and and if we were to switch over to more vegetarian-type diets, we're not saying eliminate meat completely, but the, the less of it we can have, the more space we can return to the wild. And the, the easier we'll be able to get a hold on this thing that is climate change. It's another good example of those small things that you can do in your individual life to try and shift market incentives. So a, a lot of friends of mine, and, and I've certainly been influenced by the ideas of, of going going more vegetarian on certain days of the week yep. or kind of trying to cut down your red meat consumption or trying to cut down various bits and pieces that you know aren't as sustainable for the environment. 
Those small changes might seem minuscule to you, but with enough of people doing it, it can shift the way those markets run and kind of push the, the innovations and the kind of changes in our society forward. And so those are the things we have to keep talking about because like you say, like we don't have to be the hero here. We don't have to go and save every panda. We don't have to go and like yeah. proactively do all of these things. We just have to stop the bad habits we've got into as humans that are just not sustainable and are kind of wasting resources and being very greedy about how we live on this planet. It's this thing that we, because we're at the top of the food chain, because we, we think of ourselves yeah. as this incredibly like high, high powered species, we think we have the right, we think we have the, the opportunity to just do whatever we want and kind of carve out spaces to be human centric and kind of do whatever needs yep. to be done in our interests and not the interests of everything else on this planet and that's going to bite us in the bum it's going to bite us because we need this planet to survive yep. we, are, we are reliant on this ecosystem in order for us to survive and so it's in our best interest it's in the best interest of the planet it's in the best interest of the animals that share this planet with us that we found we find ways to be more sustainable and to think more carefully about how what can, what we do on this planet what do we do with our waste how do we pay for things how do we farm how do we eat all these questions are very important to consider and i see progress i see more conversations but it needs to happen faster yeah. it really does yeah it really does and just to talk to that barry i was just like you i think when we look at what we can do as individuals i think we do focus we focus a heck of a lot on the, the lights on inside our houses and we focus a lot on air travel and all of these kinds of things and those are important i'm not saying they're not but what I did like is that his solutions were none of those things. His solutions were, well, what are we, where are we getting our energy from? Not how much we're using, where are we getting it from? And can we switch that to a renewable source? Well, yes, we can. So why the heck have we not done it? Then we look at, uh, at like I said, things like our diet. There's no reason why we need to eat meat in every single meal. Now, I, you know, myself, I love meat coming from South African culture. It's, it's big. We, we love <laughs> getting behind the braai and, and getting some meat going there. And that's cool. But could we switch it? Well, yeah, we, we, we definitely could. Uh, we could explore some of the other options. And when you do think about how efficient you could be in, you know, constructing these, these kind of agriculture spaces, which don't take as much space as cattle roaming on fields uh ultimately there's a lot of easy wins there and so i really do just like that his witness statement ends with some very very easy things that that we can all implement and ultimately rescue the planet because at the moment it's not in a good place definitely it's it's it's, it's now or never right it's like our generation has to be the one that starts this change i think that like there's lots more conversations i think that the millennial generation is much more aware of these sorts of things but we have the responsibility to kind of look after this planet and give it in a decent enough state to the the generations yeah. that come after yeah. us and we are in we're in a point in time where technology is increasing to a point where we have the opportunity to make changes. Like renewable energy wasn't around 50 exactly. years ago, 100 years ago, but now it's possible and it's cost effective and it's it's scalable. And so I think we have to be making these difficult decisions that are more longer term focused than just kind of the profits for the next quarter or the profits yep. for the next financial year. Exactly. And those are the conversations we need to have. Those are the things that need to be discussed in in politics, in in, in governments, in kind of the way we run our societies but also in individual circumstances with your friends like when you go out for a meal yep. can you talk about these things or with your family the way you live your life can you do your part wherever possible to be as sustainable as you can because that's the only way that as a group as a kind of a society as a complete species we're going to be able to shift the tide and i'm optimistic we can do it 
but we we all need to kind of pick up that burden and run with it. We can't wait for some sort of savior to come and figure it out. Like we yep. can't wait for that. We have to do what we can in the moment and make the best, the next best decision as 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 good as good as we can. Completely agree. And if you are living in the UK, the one great thing that we have here is the option to choose our energy providers. And every single energy provider that I've seen of late has got a renewable option. So you can yourself do something so easy to switch your policy over to the renewable option. Sometimes it's the same price, sometimes it's a little bit more expensive, but that's something that you can make a massive difference by just reducing the demand for sort of the old way of generating power and the ways that we know are not good for the planet. So anyway, a lot of things to to think about there. I definitely recommend you go and watch it because I rambled on and I don't think I got the message across <laughs> as well as he did. Um, so definitely do go and watch it. But Barry, that as always brings us to the end of another jam-packed episode. Yeah, and lots of tough topics mm. this week, Chad. Lots and lots of uh, difficult topics, a little bit of a somber mood here across the pond. Yep. Um, but it, it's it's important stuff. And unfortunately, some sometimes this kind of just dominates the conversation. But I hope you found something of value in this. In this, um, We really love doing this. We're coming up on one year Ooh. next week, Chad, which is very, very exciting. So we've got a very nice recap show planned for next week. So lots and lots of laughs and good times next week. But for this one, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we touched these topics. And I think they're important, Chad. I completely agree with you as always please do follow us on all social media platforms we are on twitter at across underscore podcast instagram at across the Pondcast, and facebook across the pond podcast also if you would like to feature in our show and ask us a question or just talk about things that are on your mind send us a voice note there's a link in any podcast platform that you're listening to just click it over there it'll direct you to your browser and you can record and talk straight into our ears that's all for today We'll see you next week. Oh.